Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Father God, we are humbled that you would allow us to gather together this morning in safety and in comfort. And we pray, Lord, that in doing so, we would not rest easy. Lord, make us receptive to your word. Let your spirit be here and present among us. And Father, uh, I pray that what is delivered this morning from the scriptures would be powerful enough to move us and change us, motivate us to action, to word and to deed. Father, um, I pray that you would use your scriptures and your spirit to accomplish your work. Get me out of the way and let my brothers and sisters hear from you. And Father, we commit this time to you in eagerness and in joyful anticipation at what you would say to us through Christ. Amen. You can be seated. And as you're doing that, if you want to follow along this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, I will... uh, I'll just, uh, I think I need to clarify a little in the bulletin. I think it says 1 through 11. When I started out the week, it was 1 through 17. When it came time to what's going to go in the bulletin, it was, well, the outline's a little sketchy, just put in 1 through 11. When it came time to put in the slides, it was 1 through 7. You can see the trend. Um, This is a powerful, powerful passage. And uh, God has used it in my life, and I'm grateful for that, but we may not get through seven verses this morning. I'll do my best, but we're going to try. In the process, uh, for those that like to have outlines and notes, I'll try to make that clear as we go along. We're going to talk about obedience this morning. Um, We'll talk about the other side of the coin, as it were. If you were here last week, you know that we talked about faith. Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, the heroes of faith that are there. And I introduce that idea with this image of a coin. A coin on one side that says faith and on the other side that says obedience. Not because this is a heads or tails, which do you prefer and how are you going to choose, but because faith and obedience are so melded together that they cannot be separated. And so... When faith grows, so does obedience. When obedience becomes stronger, so does faith. And you cannot separate them. And so last week we gazed at faith for a long time and learned more about what that means to be faithful. This morning we will gaze at obedience. And in the process we need to avoid the trap of thinking that obedience is all that we need. Because if you have mere obedience, mere actions without true faith in the gospel of grace, then you run the risk of becoming a legalist who cares nothing for the heart but only for the action. And if you have faith and care only for what's proclaimed or what's internal and and look nothing at the outward appearance of those beliefs, then you run the risk of becoming the hypocrite who says one thing and does the other. And so as we Consider this two-sided coin, we dive into the world of obedience this morning. And in doing that, I want to introduce another image. 
This is a warning. And, and actually, as I started to prepare the message, this was going to be at the end. This was going to be my conclusion. And the more that I worked through this, the more I thought, no, this needs to come first. And it's a different coin with two different words. On one side, it says less, and on the other side, it says more. This is not a real coin. This is a counterfeit. And the reason that it's a counterfeit is because it displays two lies, two lies that are equally powerful and equally prevalent in the way that we think and operate. And I think it's important to get that out front because if this is the way that our brains are thinking this morning as we work our way through this text, we run the risk of being deceived in how we're going to apply it. And so what I mean by less and more is this, less. If you do not obey God, He will love you less. That's the first lie. More. If you do obey God, He will love you more. That's the second lie. Two sides of a counterfeit coin. And we need to expose the counterfeit up front. If I do not obey God, He will love me less. Every single one of us who sits in this room this morning comes in laden with sin. This week, in the midst of trying to soak my mind in the Scriptures and trying to put it into a form that I could deliver and in the, in the midst of trying to even learn what God would tell me and how I could apply His Word to my life, right in the middle, I gave in to temptations of pride and anger in a way that hurt. I was self-righteous, and my self-righteousness hurt me, and it hurt some people that I really love. Now I've been restored in my relationships, and I praise God for the grace that is sufficient for that. But even in the midst of that sin, God still loved me. God still loves you. And in the midst of disobedience, pride, anger, foolish words spoken without consideration, Jesus took that, endured the penalty for it, and allowed God to pour out on me the love that I did not deserve. And no act of disobedience on your part will take away that love and that mercy and that grace. Lie number two. If I do obey God, He will love me more. And last week we read of Hebrews 11 and these wonderful heroes of the faith, and this week we'll look at a little bit of Hebrews 12, and we'll get excited about obedience, and there's a couple different ways we might react to this. Some of us are going to get excited about doing good things for the cause of Christ, and we will be motivated to go out and work hard and do good. Others of us will we'll be stuck on the replays in our minds of all the failures and the opportunities that we had and we let slip and we'll say, yes, I could be doing good, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm doing poorly. 
And either, re- either way we react, our reaction is based on the lie that I can do something to make God love me more. Nothing you can do will make God love you more. No act of obedience, no good work, no kind word, no sacrifice. Why? Hmm. Because if you have placed your faith in Christ, if, if the first side of the coin is yours and you know a faith that saves you, then you have been wrapped in the indescribable, brilliant, dazzling righteousness of Jesus Christ. And nothing we can do will make it more brilliant or more dazzling or more righteous. And so we need to walk into Hebrews 12 knowing God is going to call us to obey. And in the process of obedience, we need to understand that nothing that we do will make God love us less. And nothing that we do will make God love us more. And we set aside those counterfeit ideas. Because even though less and more don't apply, what we do matters. And this is the beauty of God's reality. That it's not our salvation or our standing before God that hinges on what we do, but what we do matters to God. Our text this morning is Hebrews 12. I'm going to read seven verses. If God's kind enough, we'll get through them. But we'll get through some good stuff, no matter how many we get through. If you want to read along, Hebrews 12 starts this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may grow, not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed, addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? Father, as we open this passage, would You open our minds and our hearts to receive it? Would Your truth be here that we would be changed by it and made more obedient because of it as your sons and daughters. 
through Christ. So, we open up this passage, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and we see a very familiar word, therefore. A word that links the passages that we talked about last week to the one that we talk about this week. And it's also a word that melds the sides of our coin together, faith and obedience. We've heard this truth about faith in chapter 11, and we've seen how faith is explained, and we've heard how faith is demonstrated. And now God wants to offer us an application of that faith. Here's what that faith looks like. Here's what you do with that truth. Our counterfeit coin would tell us that we're called to obey God either so we can earn His favor or so that we don't lose His favor. And those are the lies that we want to avoid as we walk this path through Scripture. But this passage, instead of those wrong reasons to obey, offers us some legitimate reasons to obey, some valid reasons why obedience is the right path. Why should we obey? Why would God have us do what is right? Let me offer two ideas in answer to that question. Why obey? The first is identity. The second, which we'll get to in a few minutes, is survival. Why should we obey? Because it's who we are and because we need to. First, the idea of identity. This therefore at the beginning of the passage points back to chapter 11. And chapter 11, this faith, this being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, was demonstrated in the lives of the saints, Abraham, Moses, others. And we talked about how this faith is anchored in Jesus Christ. It's the object of our faith that matters, not the strength of our faith in anything, but the object that anchors it. And if Jesus, this object of our faith, is so powerful, and it's the work of the Savior on the cross that allows us to do what we do, it's the city of God that Abraham had his eyes set on, whose foundations cannot be shaken. This certainty of what we cannot see, but what we do know. This is what calls us to respond in obedience. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are these witnesses? Well, we read about them, Abraham, Moses, others. We didn't get all the way through the chapter. If you read the end of Hebrews 11, you see that it's not just the big names, it's the little ones too. It's all the others that we wouldn't have time to study if we spent days on this passage. Big names, not so big names, even unnamed names, those that have gone before us and have a common faith in a common Messiah. Why are we to obey? Because this is our heritage. It is who we are. We are the redeemed people of God, and this is what God's people do. If this were a movie... This would be the scene where dad and his young son are sitting in the library in the big house 
with all the big oil paintings on the walls. And they'd be looking from generation to generation of all the men and the women who've done the great and honorable things with the little names and the dates. And they'd be remembering the stories that have been told at family gatherings and the lore that is the family name. That's Hebrews 11. That's the therefore. And dad would turn to son and he would remind the son of what their name means because of all the generations that have built up that name. And son would say, dad, why why do we do this? Why are we the ones that are always sacrificing? Why are we the ones that are always letting people into our homes? Why are we the ones that are always doing what's right and noble and good? And dad would say, because it's who we are. It's who we are. And children of God, redeemed people of faith, brothers and sisters who have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus, this is what we do. It is our identity to do the things that our Father calls us to do. We don't obey to gain entrance to the family. We obey because we're in the family. Not only is it who we are, it's what we must do. We need to obey for the sake of our own survival. We keep reading, and the author of Hebrews says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is a great word picture. We're running a race, a marathon. We're running the marathon of Psalm 139. It begins as we're knit together in the womb by our Heavenly Father. It continues through each of the days that have been ordained before us, before we were ever known. This race course goes from the dawn of the morning across the vast ocean into the depths of the grave. It lasts a lifetime. As we run, we we climb uphill, we trot downhill, we run around curves, we go through forest paths, we sprint across open plains. There are easy times, there are hard times, there are times we're exhausted and can't go a step further. There are times when we're jogging downhill and feel like we could run as fast as the wind would take us. But in the end, it is a race that will take all of our strength, all of our breath, all of our lives, all that we have to give. And if we want to survive this lifelong marathon race, we must obey. Why? Because as we lay aside the weight of disobedience and as we cast off this sin that entangles us and holds us, it allows us to run the race course in a way that's unhindered. But to do that, we must fight at every turn. Because this sin is a nasty, nasty thing. This disobedience that this verse speaks of This is a hard thing to fight. Elsewhere, 
Scripture describes sin as a small spark or a burning coal. And it sits waiting. It sits ready to ignite a raging fire if it could just get a little fuel to get going. And we were easily deceived. We see this little glowing ember along the path of the race, and we want to stop and just look at it because it's fascinating. We want to admire it, and we want to maybe just feel a little of its warmth and rejuvenate ourselves with the pleasure that it offers. And Maybe we'll just stop a bit to rest and, and enjoy what it can give. And We won't touch it. We won't handle it. It won't really grab hold of us. Sin sings, sin clings so closely that all it needs is the smallest little touch, the smallest little dry fuel, and it engulfs us. We cannot pick this thing up and put it in our pocket any more than we would put a, a glowing ember in our pocket. Because before we would know it, we would be engulfed. This is what we fight as we run the race course. And so, obedience, this idea that God tells us what to do and we must do it, this is necessary for our survival because otherwise, we don't run the race. We are, are caught fighting the fire of what our sin has done in our lives, and we're caught entangled in this web that we can't get out of, and, and sin has this awful way of working that when, get, when it gets hold of us, the harder we struggle, sometimes the worse it gets. And like the poor unsuspecting little bug in the spider's web, we flap and flounder and only wrap ourselves more tightly in it. So, we cast aside this sin. We cast aside this disobedience for our survival. And in the process of doing that, in the process of casting off the sin and laying aside the disobedience, as we obey, we proclaim who we are to the world that watches us. Identity and survival. Two reasons to obey but if that's why we obey, then we should ask ourselves, how? I mean, this sounds hard, right? We're running this marathon. We have this race, and, and we're fighting off these things that would drag us down at every twist and turn. How are we to do this? And I'll be honest, if you, if you challenge me right now to a 26.2-mile run, I'd be done at point two. How do we do this thing for the long haul? Again, let me offer two ideas. How to obey. Verse two. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Idea number one is focus. 
Jesus himself is our example. Looking to Jesus, consider what Jesus endured. Consider the shame and the agony and the misery that he had to endure when he went to the cross. Consider what it meant for him to experience the worst of humanity physically, emotionally, spiritually, forsaken by his Father. And he took it all upon himself. How did he do this? Verse 2 tells us, by looking to the end. He was focused. There was no joy in the cross. And yet it says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It was not a joyful experience, but he knew the joy was on the other side. The joy came from the empty tomb three days later. And so Jesus, in order to endure, in order to suffer so that God would ultimately exalt him, and so that he could then lift up us, his brothers and sisters, and draw all men unto him. And going through the cross to get there, he knew that the only way to do that was to focus on what lay on the other side. We talked about this last week even with Abraham, right? Why would a man leave the land that he knows, the place where he's comfortable, and go to a place that is totally forsaken? Because he saw the city whose foundations could not be shaken. He saw what God was doing, not here, not now. It was unseen with the physical eyes, but seen with the spiritual eyes. And he knows that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. So Abraham ran to the end. And we now can focus on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And we now can consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. And in in considering these things, we can try to run without growing weary and faint-hearted. This is actually not the kind of a race that we would typically run here on earth. We need to understand that. This is not the race that I'm running against you to see who can get to the finish line first. This is a race that's already been won. We don't want to get there first. We want to get there. (laughs) Period. The goal is not to win in the sense of being number one. The goal is to win in the sense of crossing the finish line. But make no mistake, Jesus has already done it. That's why our focus is on Him at the end. Because He has already borne in Himself the penalty for our disobedience. And so it's not about winning in the sense of merit. It's about winning in the sense of survival. And in so doing, we obey. And by focusing on this great Savior. We obey. How else are we to go about this thing called obedience? The other idea is discipline. Focus and discipline. And this is the hard one. Look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. These are the verses that pull no punches. They call us to a life of obedience that is not easy. Um, my daughter has a sweatshirt she wears from time to time. Actually, I think one of the other kids has inherited it now, but that's okay. Um, I'm not telling you it's easy. I'm telling you it's worth it is the slogan. Uh, her nursing school class got these sweatshirts because they knew it was a hard road ahead to get through nursing school, but they knew in the end it would be worth it. And so it was a good reminder for them to walk around the halls with these shirts to say this. It's a good reminder. It's not easy, but it's worth it. And sometimes in Christianity, in our eagerness to look appealing to the outside world, we want to make it look easy. We want to say, this is the life that anyone can do. And I understand why we want it to be attractive, and I understand the burden of Christ is easy. His, his yoke can be borne. But be careful. But be careful lest you fall into the trap of thinking that the end of Christianity is the seaside retirement villa. Yes, our reward comes, but it's at the end of the finish line, not in the middle of the race course. Remember Hebrews 11? How many of the heroes of the faith found their Redeemer, the Messiah, and said, ah, now I can rest easy? How many of those who knew Jesus Himself were able to go off into the sunset? No. Our ancestors in the faith were beaten and stoned and driven from their homes and fed to wild beasts and persecuted in all sorts of hideous ways. And yet, sometimes we forget our true heritage and we think this thing called obedience ought to be a thing of happy comfort. There is joy in the Christian faith. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. There's more joy in the Christian faith than any other way of life. In fact, I would dare to say you won't know true joy apart from Christ. But our faith should make us content, not comfortable. If you know Jesus, you should be at peace with where you are because the secret of contentment is to know Christ. But if you are sitting here grateful for how easy it is to live this Christian life and how wonderful it is to be part of this thing called church and how simple it is, my friend, you need to ask yourself if you're really a Christian at all. Because Jesus said, if they will kill me, what will they do to you? I'm not suggesting we go out looking for persecution. I am suggesting obedience is not easy. A couple of years ago, I was reading through a book with some uh, friends. We were in an accountability group and 
There was a story in this particular book about a professional golfer named Gary Player. And like many good athletes, he would often hear people comment on his remarkable abilities and the skill he had on the golf course. One day he uh, was having a particularly rough day on the course, but he heard a fellow in the crowd comment, I would give anything to hit a golf ball like you. Because he was having a bit of a rough day, he uh, gave in to his frustration and he turned to the man, rather surprised him and said, no you wouldn't. You would give anything to hit a golf ball like me if it were easy. Do you know what you've got to do to hit a golf ball like me, he said. You've got to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning every day. You go out on the course and you hit 1,000 golf balls. And it hurts. Your hand starts to bleed. You ache. And you walk back to the clubhouse and you wash the blood off your hands and you slap a bandage on it, and you go get another thousand golf balls, and you go back out and you hit them. That's what it takes to hit a golf ball like me. Discipline is hard. Do you sin? (laughs) You don't have to answer that. Would you like to stop sinning? Have you resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood? This life of obedience is not easy. Now, be careful. Because our counterfeit coin would would lead us down this wrong path yet again. And we may think that when he says, have you resisted sin to the point of shedding blood, that somehow there's a trade-off here. Less and more don't come into play. We could fall into this trap of thinking that when we disobey, the right thing to do is somehow suffer for it, that by inflicting a pain on our own bodies that somehow we've made up for the mistake that we've caused. No, that's not what our author is getting at. Now, if you want to employ some sort of system of rewards and punishment, uh, you know, just in ways of changing your behavior in ways of dealing with habits, that's fine, that's great, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you have fallen victim to this lie that, that by punishing yourself, you can somehow appease God, that's just Satan playing havoc with your guilt. It's not truth. There's only one punishment that appeases God, death. That's why all those animals had to be killed. In the Old Testament, it's a temporary sacrifice, the shedding of blood. It's not what we're talking about here. Jesus has already atoned for our disobedience. The blood that is perfect has already been shed. We fight a war against sin, not because our blood atones for our sin, but because sometimes the discipline hurts. Focus. Focus on Jesus. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You want to know what it means to resist sin to the point of shedding blood? We forget that Jesus fought temptation, but Hebrews says He was tempted in every way like we were tempted, like we are tempted. Look at what He had to endure the night before He died. He knew what was coming. He knew the pain that he would experience. He knew the abandonment he would experience. He knew what the wrath of God entailed. 
and he struggled against temptation. Not my will, Father, but yours. I don't pray like that. He fell before his father, and he poured out his heart, and he asked God to take away this pain that he did not want to endure, and yet he begged God, change my will to conform to your will. Don't do what I want. Do what you want. When Jesus' humanity pushed back, Jesus prayed all the more fervently. And so the scripture says, he sweat in his prayer and his sweat became like drops of blood. This is the Jesus we focus on. I don't pray like this. I would like to learn. I would like God to transform this part of my life and Make me strong or I am weak, but I have a long way to go, and I'm grateful that God's grace is sufficient even for this. But what does it mean to focus on Jesus, submit to the discipline of our Father? Our Father loves us more than we can understand. We don't have to wonder about, do we have the best coach? Do we have the best gym? Do we have the best equipment? We have a Father who loves us. And we submit ourselves to His discipline, His training, His hard work of doing the things that need to be done in us. Why should we obey God? Because it's who we are and because we must for our sakes. How do we do this? We do this by focusing on Jesus who's gone before us and by discipline, disciplining ourselves and submitting to the discipline of our Father. But that leaves a huge question unanswered. What do we do? What do we do? And now you can see why Hebrews 12, 1 through 17 became Hebrews 12, 1 through 11, became Hebrews 12, 1 through 7. Because you could spend days in these verses. I have spent days in these verses and I love these kinds of passages that you can read them over and over again, and every time you go, oh my, I didn't see that. (laughs) Wow. What do we do to obey, brothers and sisters? Well, I have time for a short conclusion, and so let me offer this. We know we're running a race. We understand that this race is somehow an analogy for what we are called to do by God. And, and sometimes when people talk about obeying God's call or following in His will, they're, they're really talking about making big decisions, right? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Should I go to this school? Should I move to this location? And, and those are good decisions to wrestle through. And yes, we need to understand what is God's will in choice A versus choice B. But that's not really what we're talking about here. Because that's not the race. That's not the path from beginning to end. That's not Psalm 139 of from knit together till till death's dark door. What we're talking about here is the obedience of the everyday. We're talking about the obedience of the, the small decisions and the big decisions. And so, you want to know what to do to obey? Let me offer a suggestion. Let me offer this suggestion that you start with Hebrews 12. Go home and read it. 
See, I understand that it's not talking about the big decisions because I've read it and I know what it says. So read it. And then when you're done with Hebrews 12, read Hebrews 13. It comes right after, so it's easy to find. Two chapters, just two chapters. And I would suggest that those two chapters will give you more what to do in obedience than you will accomplish before you get to the end of the race. Let me give you an overview. Don't try to write this down. You read through Hebrews 12 and 13, here are some of the things you will be called to do in obedience to God. Strive for peace with everyone. Avoid any root of bitterness. Do not refuse God's Word in your life. Be grateful for God's unshakable kingdom. Worship God in reverence and awe. Continue in brotherly love. Show hospitality to one another and to strangers. Remember those in prison as if you were there with them. Hold marriage in high honor, whether you are married or not. Preserve the integrity of the marriage bed, if you are. Do not love money. Be content with what you have. Submit to your spiritual leaders. Do not be deceived by strange teaching. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Do good to others. Give sacrificially. Pray. When you've got all that down, we'll talk. (laughs) That is what God calls us to when He calls us to run this race of obedience. This race that Jesus has won. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are. This will not be easy. This little list of two chapters alone shows us the challenge that we face. Oh, and by the way, We'll be persecuted along the way, and our sin will entangle us. But we run. And in the end, we receive the crown of life. And along the way, we experience the joy of salvation that only faith in Jesus Christ can bring. And only the children of God can know. So run hard. Father, You have put before us the challenge of obedience that is far more than we can ever achieve. It is hard. We don't want to be disciplined, but we must. We lose our focus, but we must recenter it. Lord, would you do this work in us? Would you remind us daily of who we are in Christ? Would you remind us daily of the need to survive by casting off sin and fighting against this thing that would consume us? And along the way, every step, Lord, would you give us the grace that we need? God, we are yours, and we trust that what work you have begun in us, you will complete. Glorify yourselves in us. Make us like Jesus so that people will look at us and see Jesus. Amen.